Welcome to Molotov Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sherry Ann, and we are the hosts of Molotov Now on the Channel Zero Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. On this episode, we have a roundtable with multiple chapters of Food Not Bombs around the country. All are facing their own versions of repression of their work at the hands of the cities they live in. Food Not Bombs is an international, all-volunteer organizing structure that allows anyone anywhere to share food and political literature for free under their moniker. As long as what you're doing is not just giving away food, but working to end hunger for everyone, then you can call yourself Food Not Bombs. Today on the show, we have members from Miami, Houston, West Palm Beach, and of course, Aberdeen. All of these chapters have faced challenges to their free giving away of food and political literature by their local governments, some involving tickets and fines, some involving lawsuits and trials. There have been many victories as well as challenges, with activists successfully having won this type of case many times in the past. Beyond our current struggles, we also get to ask questions that get to the heart of how Food Not Bombs has been successful at keeping people involved over its long history, as well as ways that different chapters handle the underlying mission of Food Not Bombs, that is, ending hunger, not simply feeding the hungry. We're excited to share our interview with you, but first we have some updates from Sabo Media's newsletter, The Communique, with some upcoming regional events and local Aberdeen news. If you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash... AL1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Sabo Media also now has a merch shop open at feralthreads.square.site. Go get yourself some sick anarchist t-shirts and stickers. More coming all the time. Thank you. Stay tuned for our radical news roundup as well as music. But first, here is a message from our sponsors. Embers, anarchist perspectives from the territory currently occupied by the Canadian state. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or on the Channel Zero Network. to Molotov Now. By way of local news, we bring you an audio version of our revised newsletter, The Communique, available on our website. This month, we included a new addition to our newsletter, Sabotage Noise Productions Minizine, with upcoming radical events and interviews with radical groups. This month, they had 
an interview with Ostrich Bay Exchange, a harm reduction crew in Kitsap County, as well as an FAQ about Sabotage Noise Productions themselves. For more, follow them on Instagram at Sabotage Noise Productions. Upcoming events. From Tacoma, we have a show at the Solidarity Spot at 1220 South 23rd Street on September 22nd from 6 to 9th the Tacoma Anarchist Book Fair. More shows will be held at the Gravel Pit. For more information, follow their Instagram at Gravel Pit Tacoma. For Bremerton, we have The Charleston. You can follow them on Instagram at the Charleston 333 They're located at 333 North Callow Avenue, September 7th at 6.30 p.m. There will be a screening of Sorry to Bother You with Kitsap IWW and with, with a rap from Ralph Rain. September 8th at 8 p.m., there will be a benefit show for Ostrich Bay Exchange, featuring Virtual Birds, Seize the Means, Roshi and the Rain Dogs, and Red the Outlaw. November 11th at 8 p.m., there will be a benefit show and Radical Zine Fair. Tabling starts at 6 p.m. for Kitsap Food Not Bombs, featuring Rank and Vile, Negligence, and more to be announced. In Olympia, we have the West Side Block Party at 4th and Milroy. September 9th from 3 to 7 p.m. There will be a potluck, free piles, music, kids' corner, zines, and a grill-off. Be sure to mask up. Then at the Mortuary, for more information, follow them on Instagram at at Holy Mortuary. On September 3rd from 8 p.m. to 12, Attic Ted and other local bands. On September 4th from 7 to 10 p.m., Moira Scar, TIT, and Ixrelia. On September 9th from 2 to 11 p.m., Freak only, freaky deaky market with punk stuff, clothes, art, electronics, gear from local vendors. September 27th from 6 to 9 p.m. Z's Grim, Earth Contact, Trigger, Germany. September 30th, 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Shane Colt, Grease, Gobs, plus more. In Seattle, at Left Bank Books, who you can follow at Left Bank Books Collective on Instagram. At 92 Pike Street, every first Thursday from 7.30 to 11 p.m. will be an open mic on September 7th and October 4th. August 31st at 7.30 p.m., Sister Wife Sex Strike, Devorah the Maccabee, and Lace and Bass Suitcase. September 30th, Moon Bandits, Moon Pillow, and Sister Wife Sex Strike. At Casa de Zolo, who you can follow on Instagram at Casa de Zolo, located at 3418 Fremont Avenue North in Lazy Cow Bakery. September 1st, Joe Wayne and Doza, Julianne Moon and Coleman. September 22nd, Mercado POC Community Centered Party and Market. At Pipsqueak Gallery, who you can follow on Instagram at pipsqueak.seattle, located at 173 16th Avenue. Every first Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m., they have a prisoner letter write. Every second and fifth Thursday, craft night. That's September 14th, 21st, 28th, and October 12th. September 23rd from 10 to 7 p.m., Fashion for Reparations Mutual Aid Clothing and Bake Sale. And finally, at the Vera Project, where you can follow at Vera Project on Instagram. Located at 305 Harrison Street, October 28th, we'll have a benefit show for Cold Weather Mutual Aid. Do you want to list your cool show or benefit event for mutual aid, labor solidarity, prisoner support, or general anarchy? Contact Sabotage Noise Productions. Email at sabotagenoiseproductions at proton.me or at Instagram at sabotagenoiseproductions. The first communique of the month included updates about some of the antics of our local politicians, looking at City Council hopeful Riley Carter and mayoral candidate Douglas Orr. The violent and fantastical thinking of Riley Carter. 
Riley Carter is running for Aberdeen City Council Ward 5, position 9. He bought a house here about a year and a half ago, somewhat near to the downtown core of Aberdeen, making him a part of the price hike in property values that occurred around the same time. He has an equally long history of organized harassment of the unhoused community, labeling them all as tweakers in order to dehumanize them and validate his violent fantasies. Here at Sabo Media, we have documented his founding of the Facebook group, Hey Tweakers of Aberdeen, I Want My Shit Back, a troubling private group of locals who all gang together in comment sections to express their own visions of violence towards the unhoused, who themselves are the biggest victims of theft, often having all their belongings seized by the state and others. This outgrouping behavior is concerning, especially as many known fascists have used this group to advocate nothing short of murdering poor people whom they suspect of a crime, which has led to a noticeable increase of harassment against the unhoused community that anyone who works with them will have seen. After founding this group, he was called out publicly by many in the community who saw through the facade of law and order to the fascistic roots of this violent rhetorical propaganda. Riley was, and still is, trying to get people hurt. He clearly doesn't see the unhoused, or those he deems to be addicts, as humans worthy of his empathy. Although he knows how to censor himself in regards when being interviewed by local radio station KXRO, the newsletter continues to break down a video uploaded to his TikTok, the KXRO interview, and many screenshots of his private Facebook group, encouraging or dreaming about violence. Douglas Orr's History of Hate As we write this, Douglas Orr will be advancing to the general election in November for Aberdeen City Mayor. The result broke down to a very close race, with an estimated 10 ballots yet to be counted at time of printing. Doug Orr is leading Piracini by 59 votes and Shaw by 86 votes. In total, 2,555 people voted for mayor this primary election, which is about 15% of the city's population according to the last census in 2020. By any calculation, a vast majority of people in the city of Aberdeen took our advice and didn't vote for mayor. It remains to be seen how many will take political direct action into their own hands. It's too bad that a mayor will still take office regardless of the will of the people. We have recently published a zine with some of Doug's most egregious outbursts and views. We have also published plenty on his opponent, the hate group leader Debbie Ann Piracini. While her history of harassing the unhoused is markedly more vicious and long-term, His is nonetheless useful to examine as we head into a useless general election between two candidates that both want the same things for the city. We became aware of Doug Orr for the first time in the winter of 2022, when the last emergency cold weather shelter was open across the street from his massive art studio slash house. This was when he began to lose his mind over the proximity of the extreme poverty near his place of residence and business. Instead of empathizing with the struggles of those on the streets, forced to go to a congregate shelter for survival, He chose to lash out at them through a series of rant posts on his Facebook profile. The newsletter breaks down his various outbursts on Facebook over the months that the cold weather shelter was open. Doug Orr loses it at Rain Glow. Every year in Aberdeen, the Aberdeen Arts Center, organized in part by Doug Orr, among other community members and businesses, hosts their Rain Glow event. The alleyways and side streets are closed off near his art studio, and for a fee, people can experience different worlds of light, sound, and art. A family-friendly event that was disrupted by the main man himself screaming at comrades distributing our Aberdeen's anti-voters guide on the corner. He ran up on these good comrades, calling them c**t-lickers, and claiming that he was not a fucking Republican in front of a dozen families. He then said that he had reached out to them to see about working with them, possibly confusing Sabo Media for the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network, or their chapter of Food Not Bombs, whom he did contact about working together, according to a public Facebook post made by the Mutual Aid Network posted just before the Ranglow event. After receiving his Facebook message, they proceeded to share a screenshot of its contents on their page with a scathing open response. 
In this post, they ask him to save his words and show how it counts, with actions. They implored him to drop out of the race and join them in the streets. He has since claimed that he will act in accordance with the needs of the unhoused and his hopeful bid for mayor. His history of acting hostile and often downright violent towards people who have done nothing but disagree with him publicly is disturbing, and points to a pattern of behavior that would lead one to believe that he will continue to present a danger to the unhoused community, who are as unlikely to accept his authority any more than any other mayors. This little tirade was followed up by multiple instances of Doug having a tantrum, including walking up and snapping photos and telling the security guard about our comrades. Hilariously, his outburst had interrupted a conversation between one of our comrades and a member of the community who was trying to defend Doug, saying that he would never say those things when presented with his threatening screenshots. Those screenshots and outbursts and other receipts and visual aids related to this story and more can be found on the newsletter The Communique, Volume 5. In Volume 6 of the Communique, they discuss the new drug possession ordinance that just took effect, saying, In a recent post on Facebook, the Aberdeen Police Department bragged about one of its officers conducting the first arrest for simple drug possession since the city's new ordinance targeting drug users went into effect August 15th. As explained by APD, the new law allows officers to arrest on the first such offense rather than them having to refer out for treatment for the first two offenses. Previously, people found in possession of controlled substances were diverted to treatment services. Now they will be able to arrest people and impose a sentence of up to 364 days in jail, a $5,000 fine, or both. Somehow this is supposed to help them provide, quote, a path to treatment through the criminal justice system. They have yet to figure out that part, but they can at least arrest people for a recognized medical disorder. The communique ran through the city ordinance and all of its hypocritical language around substance use disorder, being a recognized medical condition, all while laying out the new criminal penalties for it. Apparently, the police in the city think that arresting people for medical disorders is, quote, encouragement and care. Health professionals would beg to differ. The newsletter then laid out the treatment for SUD, none of which happened to include incarceration or penalties. The city's professed concern is for the size of the drug market and the time-honored tradition of going after dealers by going after users, a ploy that has never worked in the long war on drugs in this country. The true reason for their actions is again to punish and harass people that they have targeted for exclusion from their future society. The people who sit on the city council have never wanted anything approaching treatment for drug users. They want to force people into sobriety in a cell without any proper treatment. They want to be able to stock the jails and prisons with inmates based on low-level drug offenses, another failed policy from the war on drugs. This actually increases the market for drugs, as many people are exposed to hard drugs in prison. And once released, selling drugs is often the only job opportunity open to a felon. This is another in a long line of targeted ordinances aimed at making the lives of the poor, addicted, and the unhoused in this city as miserable and as shit as possible. Rather than focusing effort and resources on the proven medical interventions of the present, the city has taken a step back in time to a period marked by ruined lives and mass incarceration. Current elected officials, such as Casey Ann Morrison, have built their careers off of protesting against traditional treatment centers and proven harm reduction measures. For example, her and her group SOAP, Save Our Aberdeen Please, were responsible for a weekly protest of the local needle exchange, every week for months. They showed up and harassed and demoralized the people walking up to and leaving the exchange. This resulted in many people choosing not to return to the exchange despite needing its services. Grace Harbor County sees highest COVID rate in Washington. 
The rate of COVID-19 transmission in Grace Harbor County is the highest of any county in Washington State. According to the most recent data from the Washington State Department of Health, the department's COVID-19 data dashboard shows that Grace Harbor County had a seven-day case rate of 73 cases per 100,000 during the last week of July, which amounts to 55 actual cases during that time period. The case rate didn't breach 20 per 100,000 until the end of June, then steadily rose to about 50 by mid-July. Grace Harbor is the only county in the state with a substantial COVID case rate, measuring greater than 50 but fewer than 100 cases per 100,000 people. Behind Grace Harbor is Thurston County with 46 cases per 100,000 people. The average statewide is only 24. We've had way higher rates in the past. We've also had way lower rates. But it's a spike from what we've been seeing, said Emma Manley, epidemiologist with Grace Harbor County Public Health, in an interview with The Daily World. This is a reminder to still wear masks in large group settings. Test yourself if you feel sick and take proper sanitation care, such as hand washing and sanitizing. The public health department supplies free COVID-19 tests through the local Timberland libraries. They also mentioned trying to increase access for the unhoused to vaccination services. The stats on Grace Harbor vaccination rates show us at 63%, below the statewide average of 71%. While people would like to think that COVID is over and we are done with having to protect each other through simple precautions like masking up, this data demonstrates that we are still in this. We need to continue getting vaccinations as well. Just because Joe Biden declared an end to the state of emergency doesn't mean that the pandemic is over. It still affects the poor and vulnerable among our society. It's sobering to think about the 6,927,378 people that have died of COVID-19 since the start of pandemic that we know about. The real number is far higher. While the death rate has dropped significantly from its peak in January 2021, when more than 102,000 people died in a single week, thousands of people still die of COVID-19 every week. Train derailments in Aberdeen are cause for concern. For the second time this year, a train was derailed here in Aberdeen, a town crossed by train tracks at many vital and busy junctions. One of the most dangerous places to be in regards to possible train derailments is the homeless encampment under the Chehalis River Bridge, being at most 10 feet away from the tracks. They were placed here by the city in an attempt to find a spot for them to go after evicting them from their longtime river camp in 2019, due in part to it being dangerous and close to the train tracks. This location was set back a good 100 yards from the tracks as compared to their current location, not even a train car's width away from the tracks. On August 8th at 9 p.m., a Puget Sound and Pacific train derailed in Aberdeen near West 1st Street, blocking the crossing there. The engine and five cars carrying soy meal derailed, but no injuries were reported, said Tom Cuba, vice president of communications for PSAP's parent company, Genesee and Wyoming Railroad Services. Quote, one of the derailed rail cars overturned and spilled roughly 500 pounds of soy meal on the ground, Cuba said in an email. A contractor will be on site this morning to begin the cleanup and re-railing process, which is expected to go through Saturday morning. End quote. The cause of the derailment is unknown at the time of writing. On May 17, 2023, another Puget Sound and Pacific Railroad train carrying soy meal experienced a derailment in nearby Central Park. Eight cars came off the tracks around 5.20 p.m., said Cuba. No injuries were reported as a result of the derailment. The initial investigation indicated that the cause of the derailment was thermal misalignment of the tracks, Cuba said in an email. High heat, which can cause the tracks to buck. Neither of these specific train derailments happened to be carrying hazardous material or hurt anyone in their derailments, thankfully. But this calls to memory the train disaster of East Palestine, Ohio, where the train was carrying incredibly hazardous materials. It is concerning to think that something similar is bound to happen here in Aberdeen, with the amount of train traffic we see coming to and from the port of Grace Harbor. If anything like that were to occur, 
We couldn't sit by and say the warning signs weren't there, as this type of thing has been happening with increasing frequency here locally. What will the next cargo that spills be? Where will the next train go off the rails? Will it crush the unhoused beneath the bridge? Will it explode like in East Palestine? We cannot know at this time. But Genesee and Wyoming Railroad Services, Inc. need to conduct a thorough examination of their rail lines. And we here in town need to consider what types of cargo we want to be transported through our town. In East Palestine, independent university researchers have found that 80% of residents they surveyed say new symptoms experienced since the wreck, headaches, rash, cough, eye irritation, and diarrhea, are still present six months later, and about 40% said they suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. If we want to avoid this fate, then we need to be proactive in determining what exactly gets transported on the local rails, and have our say if something is deemed to be too dangerous or hazardous. We cannot rely on the goodwill or even mere competence of the railway companies. 365 acres to be cleared for Seabrook expansion. On the coast of Grace Harbor lies a strange little town, a town created by one development company, Seabrook. Seabrook is a private company, not an incorporated municipality, that owns the land in Grace Harbor County. It caters exclusively to the wealthy in both its offerings of homes and services. Similar to other fabricated towns in the area, like Oyhut Bay, it is a creepy and off-putting vibe, as though you have stepped into the movie Stepford Wives, where everything has the appearance of perfection, but everything also is fully manufactured and fake. Towns like these are part of a larger trend for the ultra-rich to segregate themselves away from the economies of housing markets and local cities. They create their own corporate towns out of whole cloth, building everything from the ground up to be as exclusive as possible. Seabrook currently has 34 acres and has built 600 homes, the vast majority sold to wealthy white Seattle techies, only 130 of whom live there full-time. It is essentially what gentrification wants to do to every small town in the area. Whoever said the rich don't live glamorous, extravagant lives surrounded by beautiful things? Now, Grace Harbor County has approved a pair of development deals with Casey Roloff, Seabrook's founder and CEO. Over the next 20 years, Roloff wants to develop two large neighborhoods straddling the current town. This would be a maximum of 1,100 new lots. We were running out of land to develop and build houses on, Roloff said in an interview with the Daily World. This assures the county that we're going to be building out here for the foreseeable future, and it's not just going to run out. The county was so worried that Seabrook might run out of land to develop and stop. Please. This is about money and exclusive housing, as it always has been. After having averaged 30 new homes per year over the last 20 years, Roloff says now that he wants to double that pace. Thankfully, the county is very flexible in the way that we get approved, which is the right approach, he said. Let us hope that the county is as flexible in improving all its future housing developments and not just for the rich corporations. Both developments will replace Swass as second-growth forest land, Environmental review includes geology and wetland surveys, archaeological and cultural artifact surveys, and review under the State Environmental Policy Act. In both cases, an SEPA review found the developments will not have a probable significant adverse impact on the environment. The newsletter then broke down the land rights of the area, including the history of the treaties governing it. They stated that this is the land of the Coast Salish tribes, namely the Quinault tribe. We acknowledge our collective responsibility to abolish the settler colonial states occupying Turtle Island. The Quinault Treaty was a treaty agreement between the United States and the Native American Quinault and Quillette tribes located in the Western Olympic Peninsula north of Grace Harbor in the recently formed Washington Territory. The treaty was signed on the 1st of July, 1855 at the Quinault River and on January 25th, 1856 at Olympia, the territorial capital. It was ratified by Congress on March 8, 1859, 
and proclaimed law on April 11, 1859. Signatories included Isaac Stevens, Superintendent of Indian Affairs and Governor of the Washington Territory, and representatives of the Quinault and Quillette, as well as the Ho tribes, which was considered a subset of the Quillettes. The Quinault Indian Reservation was established under the terms of the treaty. Indian signatories and included the Quinault Head Chief, Subchiefs, and the Quillette Head Chief and Subchiefs, along with other tribal delegates. The Quinault Treaty was one of the last several signed during the Washington Territory's first decade. Acquiring land secessions from the Native Americans was one of Isaac Stevens's primary goals as the first governor of the territory. Other similar session treaties Stevens negotiated in the 1850s include the Treaty of Medicine Creek, Treaty of Hellgate, Treaty of Nea Bay, Treaty of Point Elliot, Point No Point Treaty. The Quinault Treaty continued Isaac Stevens' policy of consolidating tribes, often requiring tribes to move far from their homeland to a reservation to be occupied by several unrelated tribes. While not taking this policy as far as the Treaty of Point No Point did, the Quinault Treaty resulted in the establishment of the Quinault Reservation in the Quinault homeland, but required the Quillette and Ho to move there, although few did. The treaty negotiations were conducted in Chinook jargon, which, according to Paul Prucha, was, quote, a lingua franca along the Pacific Northwest coast, but hardly an effective tool for sensitive negotiations, for it had a vocabulary of only about 500 words, and a single word might be used to translate a number of different English words. Roloff also secured an exemption to the recent short-term rental regulations that limit Airbnb-type rentals in the county due to their destructive nature. In the current town of Seabrook, between 300 and 400 out of 600 total homes are currently operated as rentals by Seabrook's hospitality department. Short-term rentals in Seabrook generate more lodging tax revenue than any other source in the county, said Vicki Raines, county commissioner for District 3, which includes Seabrook. I've always been pro-growth and development, Raines said. I appreciate people that want to come to Grace Harbor to vacation here, spend time here, and of course, spend their money here. The county will always do anything for rich corporate interests. If there are laws that need exemptions, they have them. If there are environmental reviews to a rubber stamp, no problem. Meanwhile, the poor are being pushed out of the last few places they can go by an increasingly erratic and hostile public who see any sign of poverty as an excuse to dehumanize and degrade a person. Our city politicians want hostile architecture and more policing, and Seabrook wants more land to turn into short-term rentals for the ultra-rich. Both will get what they want because the same people making the rules are the same people benefiting from them. Aryan Freedom Network continues to spread hate in Grace Harbor. On the night of Monday, June 5th, members of the Aryan Freedom Network, a neo-Nazi group that is based in Texas but has chapters in 25 U.S. states, drove around the town of Aberdeen throwing flyers with their Nazi-inspired logo, the 14 words of white supremacy, and a link to their website. The flyers also had a disclaimer at the bottom reading, quote, distributed randomly without malicious intent. They were sealed inside plastic bags with rice to weigh them down. They have been discovered several times since, including August 24th. The police told people to simply throw them away and that there was nothing to worry about. They claimed that there was no such activity seen around here, and they believed that it was out-of-towners coming in to spread hate. Yet, the facts beg to differ. Not only have these exact flyers been showing up regularly ever since, but we have documented previous white supremacist activities, both stickering and actual organizing. The newsletter included a few examples of photos that were snapped of white supremacist propaganda from the group White Lives Matter. The White Lives Matter movement was formed by several white supremacist groups, including the Aryan Renaissance Society and the Traditionalist Worker Party. 
In terms of actual organizing, the communique gave the example of Joshua Cash McCullum, founder and leader of the Pacific Northwest Wolf Pack, a neo-pagan white supremacist organization that has been actively recruiting and networking for years. They linked to an older report on Cash done by local anti-fascists, Chehalis River Anti-Fascist Social Support, or CRASS. The Wolf Pack has grown substantially since that reporting, including many other groups throughout the region. Not only does this man lead this white supremacist group, he is also in a management position in the largest social service provider in the county, Coastal Community Action Program, or CCAP. The newsletter then raised concerns that Cash's white supremacist agenda and views may be coloring his managerial work at CCAP. They even bring up the Northwest Territorial Imperative, a call to action for neo-Nazis and white supremacists to move en masse to the Pacific Northwest and eventually secede from the United States as their own white ethnostate. This connection between local officials and white supremacists is concerning, but not surprising. The Pacific Northwest and Grace Harbor in particular have been the focus of white supremacy movements for decades. The newsletter called for a more proactive response to these flyers than the police suggestion, which was to just throw them away and ignore, saying, We cannot afford to simply throw them out and forget about them like the police want. Despite what the flyers themselves say, this is a direct threat against us and our communities. It's time for our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. July 31st, Travels of Hate, an American far-right extremist in Greece. August 4th, Gazans flock to beaches amid record-breaking heat waves. August 5th, Traffic Stops Should Not Be a Death Sentence. Trooper kills Ricky Cobb II during traffic stop. August 8th, Shipwrecked Synthesizers, How Electronic Music Came to Cabo Verde. August 12th, The Supreme Court Bans Affirmative Action in Colleges, But Does It Really Matter? August 14th, Bombed Houses in Gaza Transformed by Palestinian Calligraphy Artist. August 16th, Helicopter Footage from Mass Arrest Reveals State Trooper Surveillance Capabilities, Tactics, and Communications. August 20th, Aimed at protest, surveillance contractors' new owners expand spy tech portfolio. August 21st, French police kill teen during traffic stop, leading to mass revolt. August 22nd, Makeba, a viral TikTok trend, plays homage to Mama Africa. August 23rd, Tale of the City, Gentrification in London, Part 3. August 25th, Repurposed Rubber, Tire Recycling in the Gaza Strip. August 26th, I Can't Take This Shit No More, Alabama Prisoner Takes a Stand. And August 28th, Minneapolis official speaks out about, quote, corruption, lack of government oversight, and useless city council. It's going down, and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. July 30th, What is Anaculture? July 31st, IWW workers at Voodoo Donuts march on Boss in Portland, issue demands. July 31st, 
anti-pipeline protesters in the Great Lakes region shut down valves on the Line 5 pipeline. August 4th, Mayday as Though Kids Matter, a report back from Ottawa. August 6th, a report back on community defense at Oregon City's First Pride. August 7th, We Go Where They Go, Resistance to Christian Nationalisms in Boise. July 28th, Canadian Tire Fire Number 62, Anarchist Book Fairs, Hashtag Search the Landfill, Fighting the Housing Crisis and Prison News. July 31st, Seize the Hospitals, But How? Report back from the Health Autonomy Conference. August 1st, In Contempt Number 31, New Support Campaigns Rally Across the U.S. Against Repression. August 12th, Andy No Loses Lawsuit. Portland Jury Finds No Fault for Two Activists in Civil Trial. August 13th, System Fail Number 25, The Urge to Destroy. August 13th, Final Straw, Another Carolina Anarchist Book Fair in Asheville, North Carolina. August 15th, This is America Number 189, Wrench Strike Grows in Eugene, Midwest Dual Power Conference, Trump Faces Indictment. August 15th, Law Enforcement Admits to Placing GPS Trackers on Michigan Activist Car. August 17th, Canadian Tire Fire Number 23, Resisting the World Police and Fire Games, Prisoner Justice Day and Tenant Actions. August 18th, Pipeline Fighters Locked to Equipment at MVP Worksite on Poor Mountain. August 18th, New Zine from Inside the MDOC, STG, Good Time and the Malicious Demons of of Coercion. August 21st, Community Rallies to Defend Freedom for Trans Women Arrested After Being Attacked in Flagstaff, Arizona. August 21st, Fire Ant, Anarchist Prisoner Solidarity, number 16. August 21st, Announcing the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair on September 23rd through 24th. August 21st, call to struggle around Bartram's against proposal for Silicon Valley. August 22nd, beating PG&E and defending the Redwoods in Humboldt. August 23rd, solidarity with anarchist prisoners. A message from occupied Oholone and Miwok territory. August 23rd, week of solidarity with anarchist prisoners. Free Jorge York Escobar. August 24th, anti-fascist flyer North Philadelphia neighborhood. Outing neo-Nazis. August 24th. Running down the walls events to take place across U.S. August 25th. Actions and work stoppages against the Mountain Valley Pipeline continue. August 26th. GDC members on nonprofit recuperation and grassroots organizing in the Midwest. August 27th. Ananthema. Volume 9, Issue 2. August 27th. Final Straw. Jessica Pishko on far-right constitutional sheriff formations. August 29th. From New York City to Atlanta. Cop City will never be built. Crime Thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. Crime Think is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at crimethink.com. August 9th, Learning from the Flames, Reflections on the June 2023 Revolt in France. August 22nd, Memoirs from Saint Emir, 1872 to 2023. Accounts from a Worldwide Anarchist Gathering, and August 25th, Gender and Sexuality in St. Emir, a memoir. Well, that does it for the news. When we come back, we will go over the case of Food Not Bombs Chehalis River, the local chapter of Food Not Bombs here in so-called Aberdeen. Then we will get into our roundtable discussion with members from Food Not Bombs Houston, West Palm Beach, and Memphis. Until we come back, we have something to help those who had to suffer through the confused ramblings of the song Rich Men North of Richmond to get by. As a remedy for your headache, we give you Stars and Stripe by Julie Lavery. I 
sister can't afford a house and she thinks it's her fault. She says if she worked harder, she'd have money in the vault. And my mother needs a surgery, her hand's always in pain. She fell ill last April and used up all her sick days. Extract them like a tumor A stain on our society They're all broken consumers Don't try to put the blame on us They ruin their own lives It's not our fault that they got hooked on drugs That we prescribe Stars for the silver spoon Welcome back to Molotov Now. 
Before we get into our roundtable discussion, we want to lay out the situation here in so-called Aberdeen, Washington, in regards to the anti-group feeding ordinance that the city is trying to pass. After the first of three required readings on June 14th, as we previously discussed, concerns were raised by those in attendance as well as those on the council about the proposed ordinance and the effect it will have on those seeking to feed the unhoused in town. The Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network has a current petition on change.org that you can learn all about the actual text of the ordinance and hear from them why this is such a harmful change to local policy. Please check out their link tree at linktree backslash crmutualaidnet for more info and to sign the petition. From the Communique, Volume 4. Essentially, it forces anyone seeking to bring resources to the homeless to apply for a permit two days in advance or face a $250 fine for the first offense and $500 thereafter, all while being banned from applying for such a permit for a full year should they find any fault with it. Among the concerns the city seek to address with this ordinance is the trash accumulated by people dumping unwanted stuff at camp. A legitimate phenomenon, to be sure, but in seeking to curb illegal dumping, which is already illegal based on current laws, they have come up with something that targets those bringing actual resources to the unhoused, Today we have a roundtable of guests from various Food Not Bombs chapters across the occupied territories of Turtle Island. Yet this isn't the only thing they have in common that have brought them on the podcast today. All have been facing harassment by their local jurisdictions. In fact, many mutual aid projects have been facing repression from their city. We will be talking to members of the West Palm Beach Food Not Bombs and the Memphis Food Not Bombs and Houston Food Not Bombs about their experiences organizing under these conditions and what we can do to remain resilient in the face of repression. Can we have everyone go around and give a quick introduction, your pronouns, a description of you or your environment, and tell us about any relevant organizing experience you have and how you got involved in Food Not Bombs? Uh, yeah, my name is Normandy. He, they is fine. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. To describe myself, I don't know. I got tattoos and piercings. In terms of organizing experiences, no, this is my kind of first time organizing with anything and specifically with Food Not Bombs, but it's been really well and a great learning experience. I do have a background in some leftist theory and knowledge, so being able to see that in action uh, has been very helpful. Yeah, and what got you involved in Food Not Bombs in the first place? I have a degree in sociology, and I got kind of fed up with all the theory of it and not so much the practical action of it. So when I graduated and moved here to Memphis, I had the opportunity to be in the right place at the right time with people who were starting uh, the Food Not Bombs here, revitalizing it. And I took that opportunity to kind of just jump in and learn as I went about Cool. Yeah, I'm Dave, uh, he, they pronouns, and I'm from Memphis, Tennessee here. And I got into like activism type stuff probably about 20 years ago, protesting the uh, war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Did a little bit of food not bombs uh, volunteering back then when I was a teenager. But more recently, I got involved with uh, this local chapter after having experiences of uh, homelessness myself and just wanting to uh, really address that in a larger way. I've got long brown hair. Um, I'm Italian, so I have like an olive complexion sometimes in the summer, <laughs> um, which is now, and uh, uh, I'm in an, like an office type 
setting right now? So my name is Carly. She, her pronouns are good with me. And I'm from the West Palm Beach Food Not Bombs chapter. And I've been involved with Food Not Bombs since August of last year. So actually, this is nearing my anniversary of being involved with Food Not Bombs. Even though this, I know that this Food Not Bombs chapter has been existing since the early 2000s. I'm glad that, you know, I'm able to join now as I've been becoming more interested in finding ways to do activism. So the way I eventually stumbled into joining Food Not Bombs is, you know, I was just becoming tired of, you know, complaining of the way things were, you know, hearing people complain on the internet or, you know, stuff like that. I, I, I wanted to find a way to do something. And I eventually came across a concept that really interested me in leftist anarchism called uh, dual power. And for those listening who are not familiar with the concept is that essentially it's the idea that one of the ways that we can use direct action to fight the system is in one way, you know, creating a, a parallel, I guess you could call it an economy, a, you know, a way of being a community, a system that is able to at some point rival the current powers that be. And, you know, one of the ways I was learning about that's really important to building dual power is through mutual aid, building mutual aid networks. And one of the many suggestions I saw everywhere about getting into mutual aid was joining your local Food Not Bombs chapter or starting one. So I Googled Food Not Bombs near me or Food Not Bombs West Palm Beach, and I found the Facebook page for the West Palm Beach Food Not Bombs. I messaged them. I said, hey, can I just show up? And they said, yeah. And that's how it all began for me. I'm just outside in my back patio in my house. Maybe you can hear the crickets or probably not. The audio is probably not that sensitive. I have um, long, light brown hair. I'm wearing a blue jacket. I'm 26 years old. I'm kind of pale. (laughs) And what's it like outside uh, at 830 in Florida right now? Very muggy, as it always is here in uh, Florida on the East Coast. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, it's fine, though. I'm used to it. I can be out here all night. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Jeff Weinberger. Been involved in political activism for a little while uh, in an organized way for probably about 20 years. Um, was a member of an ISO group in Los Angeles. I moved to South Florida in 2005, connected with members of the Food Not Bombs Fort Lauderdale group, which I think we may be referencing in the conversation going forward because they won a very important lawsuit against the city of Fort Lauderdale. I've been, I've kind of carved out a, a, a niche as a homeless advocate, done a lot of work, street outreach, documenting the abuse of homeless people. It's an ongoing project, documenting Things like people getting arrested for panhandling, all kinds of property trashing, 
a lot of things like that. I was very, very connected to the Fort Lauderdale Food Knock Bombs folks for a while. I wasn't, I, I wasn't involved so much in preparing food, but hanging out with them, talking politics with them, going to all their meetings, uh, sometimes helping them with food prep when that was, uh, necessary. I was, I was around them when they were getting arrested in 2014. I think what got more attention for Lauderdale at that time was the fact that uh, a 90-year-old man named Arnold Abbott, who ran a group called Love Thy Neighbor, was also being harassed and arrested because of the ordinance that uh, that Fort Lauderdale had passed. And it, it, it reached a, a level of uh, national, if not global, attention when Stephen Colbert did a segment about uh, what they were doing to Arnold Abbott on uh, the Colbert Report. So, yeah, I'm real. I'm real committed to to the struggle, to uh, fighting against the ordinance, to resisting the ordinance. We had to go through a process in our group of convincing people that not complying with the ordinance was the best way to go because some people wanted to kind of see, figure out how to work with the ordinance. And that was actually very problematic perspective. And um, actually, the main person who took that view doesn't even participate with us anymore. So be it. I'm, I'm involved in a lot of advocacy that kind of, I guess, reflects the mission of Food Not Bombs in addition to participating with Food Not Bombs. And what got you involved in Food Not Bombs originally? Well, I first heard about Food Not Bombs 35 years ago when I was uh, living for a couple of years in Savannah, Georgia, and I just met someone who told me, oh, that she had to go to a Food Not Bombs meeting. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And she explained what it was to me. And I thought that sounded pretty cool, but I wasn't involved. I just love the idea of it. I love what it represents philosophically in a political vein. I love the history because in some way I kind of feel connected to the history. Uh, Keith McHenry and the folks who started Food Not Bombs in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1980, they came out of the anti-nuclear movement, which was very strong at that time. And I went to school outside Boston where they all were. I didn't know them. I didn't know what they were doing. I had no clue about it. But I also was involved in anti-nuclear activism when I was a student at Brandeis University. Um, it was mainly a protest against nuclear power, but also against nuclear war, obviously. And uh, Keith McHenry was deeply in, engaged in that. I was probably at protests with him uh, and, and had no idea, no idea about him. Uh, but uh, it, it is an important part of the history of Food Not Bombs that it arose out of the anti-nuclear movement in, uh, in 1980. Uh, and uh, certainly during the 80s, um, it was a very dark time, kind of the beginning of the darkness that I think we're experiencing now, um, because it was uh, Ron, uh, John Lennon got assassinated, and a month before that, Ronald Reagan got elected pretty bad. Yeah, this is Nick from Houston. And, um, yeah, we've gotten like 52 tickets so far. I think that could be for $2,000 each. They might be less. They, they might only ask us for five, 
$100 each, but supposedly they could be as much as $2,000 each. We shall see. And um, we've been getting ticketed since March. And we've this mayor and the previous mayor have both kind of gone after us and threatened us a bunch of times. But this is the first time we've actually started getting tickets for it. And it's this weird little ritual where they kind of like, they're like, who is the person? And we say, this is the person. And this is the person that is like, I guess, conducting a food service event. And then uh, they let us share food with like however many people. It's usually like 130 people. And then at the end, they come and give that one person a ticket. And they also make sure that that one person is the one who's actually like handing the homeless people the plates and all the people who are doing the food prep uh, have been so far just left alone. So how long have you been organizing with Food Not Bombs and what got you involved in the first place? Oh, uh, since the 90s, I'm, um, yeah, I've always just been in, into it. I used to be vegan, and so I was super into that. And then my friends were doing Food Up Bomb, so I thought I'd check it out. And then um, a lot of times now, like, I don't, I, for several years, I was like the main person picking up donations and going to like every night. But now um, I'm more um, at home with my daughter a lot. And uh, so I, I mostly just kind of do fundraising and uh, outreach and web stuff. And then every once in a while, I'll go out and share food. Or go, go out and get a ticket. <laughs> and uh, you guys are facing an ordinance that you're against your feedings? Yeah, there's a law that says that uh, you need permission from the city to share food with more than five pe- needy people in public. Is basically what it says. Do they explicitly like, like label it as uh, needy? Yeah, there's, like, there's all these weird definitions. Yeah, it's just like, what is a needy person? I don't know what that is legally. But yeah, anybody who is hungry is needy. I don't... Pretty vague term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just that they're they're only going after groups that are sharing food with the homeless. It's not even that. They're only going after us. Like, they just want us to get out of the library. So they're using this law against us. It's not like they're they're citing anybody else for this, except I think there was one dude who, like, an anarchist guy, like, was just like, I am sharing food in front of City Hall so that you'll give me a ticket. And they did. But I think in, in general, like, groups are maybe sharing food in the streets all over the place and being left alone, but they just, the library wants us out of that area, you know, and they're saying, well, you know, there's a lot uptick in crime between homeless people and non-homeless people at the library. But the whole thing is based on this weird idea that we're the reason why homeless people congregate around the library. We're only there four nights a week for, you know, a half hour. The library is open like, you know, every day and it's an air conditioned building where homeless people can go and use the bathroom and the computers like there's all kinds of reasons why homeless people want to be at the library. I don't think we're one of the main reasons. Uh, we just kind of go where the homeless people are. So what brings us here today is the historical and ongoing harassment of Food Not Bombs chapters all over the country. What has your experience with this type of official harassment been? Carly, you've gotten a warning. Yeah, that's right. I want to say... That was probably two months ago now when I would say that we finally got our first real confrontation with police after the city of West Palm Beach passed an ordinance in March of this year. So that had that ordinance that was passed in March in West Palm Beach basically said that people who want to do food sharing, if they want to, well, they need to request a permit to do that. If they intend to attract, I think it was 25 people and up, basically any any kind of food sharing, and they would only allow you to request a permit two times in a 12-month period 
per location. So essentially what that ordinance enacted is that, you know, if we were to try to comply with this ordinance, we would have to be constantly changing locations, which is extremely problematic for, you know, getting people to find us and, you know, rely on us for, you know, the consistent sharings that we do every week. Um, and essentially we, we didn't experience any police harassment for a little while after that ordinance was passed, but it wasn't until like two months ago when a police officer came up to us after we, you know, had just finished with our sharing and we were packing up and we basically got, well, I, I got a written warning. So it wasn't a citation and, you know, no one had to pay any fines or anything like that, but I, I guess it was a quote unquote stern warning, you know, uh, the cop, you know, wanted to let me know that she was being nice by letting us off easy. Bunch of bullshit. So that happened. And since then, we have actually moved our location, not because of anything to do with the ordinance, but because we just found a better spot that protects us from the rain. And, you know, I wonder if the police haven't caught up to recognizing that we've moved. Like, I'm not sure if they know where we are because we're kind of now located in a, in a sort of secluded pocket of a park that is not as visible as our old spot. And so I would like to think that's why we haven't gotten any more harassment since then. But that is the current situation that the West Palm Beach chapter is in right now. We've also been calling them out. You know, we've gotten some media attention. I have a feeling that they know that we're there still because we've been somewhere in that area of the city for over 16 years. So they know we didn't just stop and we relocated because when we were about to start a sharing about three or four weeks ago, a fight broke out right where we were, right where we share. And the fight was a, a homeless woman was fighting a security guard. And you know what happens after that? The real police come. And so we couldn't do our thing. And we found a great spot on the other side of the park. It's not a big park. And we've been there ever since. And it's worked out for us. But I, I would uh, bet my bottom dollar they know we're there. We're all scratching our heads as to why they haven't hit us with a citation. They have hit a couple of women with citations. It's interesting that every time someone's been sanctioned, including Carly, who got the warning, another woman who got a warning, and two women who got citations, they were all kind of alone. It was like Carly got her citation after the sharing was over, after all the homeless people who got fed had moved on. I had been there that day, and I had left. We thought everything was hunky-dory, and then they give her a warning. But when we've been there in on Moss with a whole group, they haven't bothered us. So it's very different from my experience seeing people get cited in Fort Lauderdale nine years ago 
as soon as that ordinance went into effect, they started citing, if not arresting people. So I don't know. We're, we just go there every week and do what we got to do. And if they show up and are going to deal with us, however they do that, we'll take the consequences and see them in court. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting observation. I didn't think about that. They tend to target the people, well, particularly lone women. All women. Yeah, all women. Yeah. So how about Memphis? How has this type of harassment manifested in uh, your guys' city? So here in Memphis, uh, we've also been harassed uh, for uh, getting a permit. We've been harassed multiple times, but the point in time where we're focusing on is where we have evidence of them harassing us and kicking us out of the park. And that was actually the first time that they had asked us to leave the park. Every other time they were just like, hey, you need a permit. And then we said, no, we don't. And they said, "Okay, see you later. (laughs) So... You know, and and I think Jeff's observation, just speaking to that, them preying on people when there's uh, fewer numbers or, or so on. We only had three people setting up at the time. And so they kind of they had a good opportunity to blindside us and let us know that like, hey, you know, we're not going to let you do this today. Uh, whereas a lot of the other times there were, there tended to be more people there. So yeah, that that's something. And, and it, we're in a little bit of a different situation where they haven't written any ordinances restricting sharing food, but it's rather a local private business entity that manages the downtown area. They manage this park that we share food in. Even though it's a public park, they claim that they have the right to issue permits to non-vendors, which is something that we're still trying to get clarification about because we asked them that day when they kicked us out of the park on July 8th, 2023, uh, we asked them what the permitting policy was. And then in an email and a letter that we sent later uh, in July on the 28th, we asked them again, just for clarification as to their legal authority for issuing permits to non-vendors. And they chose to respond on our Facebook page. And since then, our, our page vanished and we've received a bunch of weird things that have been happening that of course we don't know if any of it's connected, but weird things weren't happening up until we started asking a question about their legal authority. So we find that interesting. We we ask the audience to for their thoughts. <laughs> so this is like a private management district that you're dealing with? Correct. Yeah, it's a private like business district that manages part of downtown. We're not sure like what necessarily gives them the authority to do that, but that's not the main question. It's more their the question of what like what is their permitting process because it seems like like, like something that happened in terms of them asking us for a permit when we brought this to light, they reached out to us and said, well, you know, come on down. We, we, we love what you do. We want to give you special permission. Come on down. We'll give you a permit. And, you know, being food, not bombs, we're not about to take special permission for something when we like 
other chapters know other people who will then, you know, get harassed for these things. So yeah, we're trying to fight for that clarification. So we're in the probably one of the most public and visible spots in Memphis in terms of tourism and economic development. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, developer activity in terms of building up hotels and gentrifying that downtown area. The tourist scene as yeah. well. So, you know, part of the reason why they don't like us there is because, you know, we're showing the flaws that they themselves are unable to to acknowledge and, and try to fix and help. Um, and some of that harassment has shifted. So we've been able to create a little bit of space in terms of their willingness to harass us simply because it's a mayoral race right now. But we suspect that the harassment will probably pick up after that mayoral race uh, ends. So the harassment is more kind of an implied intimidation now. Um, at our feeds now, we usually have a, a blue suede car setting um, not too far away from us. And then I think at the last feed, there was that sheriff's van mm-hmm. uh, that would be used to transport people who are arrested in a large number to the jail, uh, parked right by them as well, kind of trying to intimidate us and let us know to the fact that we think of what's potentially coming after this mayoral race ends. Yeah, the president of that business district is is the mayoral candidate that we're talking about. His name is Paul Young, and he's highly connected to what we're starting to understand. He used to run the Memphis Housing Authority up until 2021 which is when he took over the uh, downtown Memphis commission. And yeah, our current mayor has actually backed Paul Young and, and, you know, let everyone know that that's who he supports. So have any of the mayoral candidates come out in support or against what you guys are doing? Not officially. No. Yeah. No. Has anyone unofficially? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Not unofficially <laughs> or officially. Yeah, we yeah, haven't, sorry. we haven't heard. So yeah, one of, one of, we wanted to highlight, uh, Another aspect of this harassment was them kind of telling us, oh, just move here or move there. So they they did try and just kind of move us around. But having prior knowledge of what they do to other um, Food Not Bombs chapters and then actually after talking with a local lawyer who would not be able to represent us because they had recently their firm had recently represented the downtown Memphis commission. They told us that they were trying to get us to move uh, so that it would be someone else's problem to deal with us. So, so yeah, that's one, one aspect of it. But since then um, just some weird things have been happening. I had one of these blue suede people members uh, was right in front of my house one day when I came home and I had a conversation with them about, you know, what what was going on. And they were telling me that they were thinking about quitting. And this was ah, maybe three weeks ago or so. And, um, and since then we've seen them, you know, on their patrols and stuff like they obviously haven't quit. Um, so that, that was kind of weird. And they actually that same person showed up to our food share this past Saturday, um, claiming that they were bringing a plate of food to someone that an elder person who is disabled and unable to come over and get the food. But we're we're suspicious, you know, <laughs> just of what the intentions are, or if it was just to come over and kind of uh, surveillance us more. Uh, we're not sure, but definitely odd. 
so like that thing happened with one of the, those people showing up in front of my house. And then um, after that, our Facebook page had been taken down um, the same day that we were having an interview with the local news station and we were communicating with them through our pages facebook uh messages um which also disappeared when our facebook page disappeared so uh we lost all contact with them and had to scramble that morning to call the station confirm that we were still on and uh that whole shenanigan and then after that or even at the interview at uh Again, Blue Suede Brigade is the entity that normally patrols this park. But when we showed up to the interview, there was a Memphis Police Department cruiser that was at one corner of the um, the park. And then about a minute after I showed up, uh, another cruiser pulled in and they parked directly behind the camera in our line of sight for the entire interview. So that was, you know, interesting. After that happened, um, someone who I've been talking with, a single mother of two special needs children, that no one, not even anyone in Food Not Bombs knew that I was talking to this person, and no one knew this person's real name. I didn't even know this person's real name until this past week. They received a, a, a call from a blocked number from an anonymous caller and the anonymous caller said, they, they used my name. They said, this David Veroni character, he's uh, homeless and jobless and uh, jealous of people that are getting services in the city and uh, wants money from the city himself. <laughs> like, like all of these uh, crazy crazy things but then they they finished by saying and this woman is on the the voucher program for section eight and they they uh threatened her directly and said if you keep talking to this david person then something bad is going to happen to your housing situation and then and this was two weeks ago i believe and uh, then last week I received a phone call from the same person and they were uh, being threatened with a, an eviction the next day. So we raised money, $500 to prevent them from being evicted. That is alarming. Yeah, we can't say that that's connected, right? But it's pretty suspicious that someone got a threat about talking to me and that they're... Uh, housing something bad would happen to their housing and then they kept talking to me and then something bad did happen to their housing Um, so the blue uh suede group is like some kind of fascist militia or something yeah so that's kind of the alarming part about them is that they are kind of a, a police force and presence but they don't have body cameras we're not aware of their training there's not really any transparency about oh okay but they're actually working for the city mm-hmm. yes oh okay okay yeah they're like an apparently an apparatus of the downtown memphis commission uh which wow. is like a, a business uh management uh entity we were told to leave the park on july 8th and it was implied that if we didn't that they were going to call the police and that had happened to another member of ours was sharing some police abolition flyers about six months ago 
down in the same area and they had the law printed out saying that they could do that and they provided it to a blue suede person and then blue suede called the memphis police department the police showed up and then our our friend uh handed the police the the law and said no you know i'm i'm you know i'm fully within the law and everything and the cop just looked at him and said uh yeah, we can we can discuss this while you're in the back of a cruiser while we're going downtown. So um, that always seems to be the place to discuss the finer points of the law. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Being detained, yeah, that's a great great place to discuss your rights <laughs> and negotiate. It's usually, the response I hear. Well, and that's the thing is they don't care about the law. They're just like, let's arrest him and get him in front of a judge and they can sort the law out there. Yes. So that acting with impunity, right? Just like taking um, taking those liberties to, yeah, allow it to be sorted out in the courts. And I, I think that's what's happening in a lot of different chapters, but not to get too far away. That's just some of the wild stuff that's been happening to us. And we we can't prove that we've been followed, but there've been instances where we are guessing that we're, there's surveillance happening and we're just suspicious of that, or we're on the lookout rather, um, and aware that, uh, specifically in Memphis, the, the police here have a history of doing that. So. You know, it adds another level of collateral damage to the work that we do, the humanitarian work, because there are a lot of people that want to just join to help serve people food. But then, you know, they hear about us being uh, harassed by police in the park or these para police. Um, and, you know, they say, well, you know, I, I probably really don't want to be involved with that. And uh, of course, we fully understand that no one wants to be. So that's kind of why we're pushing the questions, because uh, we want to make it a safer environment for everyone to be able to share the gift of compassion. All right. So, Jeff, and anyone else who has any knowledge, feel free to jump in. Can you tell us a bit more about that 11th Circuit Court of Appeals case out of Fort Lauderdale and describe what impacts you think it will have on future legal battles? Yeah, sure, sure. I just I just want to say I think it's it's good. You know, just in response to what uh, Dave was just saying, I think it's good to push the envelope. Uh, we want to have people coming into Food Not Bombs who know what Food Not Bombs is. I mean, it's great for that anyone wants to share food with people who are hungry, but that's not all that Food Not Bombs is. And I think that's really essential. And we're talking about that in our group. When people express interest in joining us, how do we want to introduce them? We want to make sure that they have an understanding of what Food Not Bombs is and what it's been from the beginning. The The group in Fort Lauderdale is very different from the group that I'm in now in West Palm Beach. The group in Fort Lauderdale, they were a bunch of young, and I, I say young because, I, I mean, I'm 65, so... Most people are younger, <laughs> especially in food not bombs. They were a bunch of young anarchist kids. They lived in a collective house. They were radical. They were assertively anarchists. They were involved in all kinds of struggles. 
And in 2014, the city of Fort Lauderdale, in a six-month period, passed five homeless criminalization laws, including a panhandling ban. It started off with like a panhandling ban, a camping ban, a restriction on storing personal property in public space. They enhanced some stupid ordinance about urinating and defecating in public. And then the PS de la Resistance was the uh, food sharing ban. And my group's name, October 22nd Alliance to End Homelessness, actually comes from that time because the meeting uh, at which they passed the, the food sharing ban that began at six o'clock on October 21st, 2014, it ended after, at about 3.30 in the morning on October 22nd, 2014. And that's why my group is called the October 22nd Alliance. So... They um, they were cited like Arnold Abbott, who I previously mentioned. They were cited multiple times um, immediately after the ordinance was passed. The ordinance was passed, like I said, October 22nd, went into effect 10 days later. Um, Arnold Abbott got his first citation November 2nd. I actually uh, was was there when he got cited. I actually wrote an article about it in um, Broward Palm, Palm Beach New Times and also Referenced food not bombs. Food not bombs. People got literally physically arrested. Arnold Abbott was not physically arrested, but the food not bombs people were arrested. I think it was in January of 2015 that they filed their case in federal court. It took a long time to resolve, but the original ruling from the federal district court was a very conservative judge named Williams Locke sided with the city. The lawyers appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is not known to be particularly liberal court. And even now it's even less liberal than it was then, or I should say more conservative. But that court rightly ruled that what Food Not Bombs was doing was expressive conduct because they were expressing a political idea against war that we should be taking care of people's fundamental needs rather than spending money on the military industrial complex on the whole project of capitalism, imperialism. And I think that it's an important ruling, certainly an important ruling for us in West Palm Beach, if they ever really go after us, because it's in the same jurisdiction uh, as the 11th Circuit. None of the other folks on the call are in that jurisdiction, but still the ruling can be influential uh, if you guys wind up litigating. It's a very important ruling. So, um, and I know that was one of the key questions that you wanted to ask people. So that's, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but because of the- Yeah, if I could jump in, like uh, in Houston, like, you know, we're we're citing that in our uh, motions to quash and all kinds of stuff like that. So the the 11th Circuit decision is, is relevant for our lawyers here. Yeah, I mean it's it formally speaking it's it it you're in a different circuit but I still think it's influential and it's definitely um you know the lawyer should be mentioning it because it is expressive conduct and if you ever get to that point in your legal fight uh, hopefully you'll get the same kind of result and ultimately who knows maybe the Supreme Court will be deciding something like this if there if there's different rulings in different circuits but but uh yeah i think it's real real important and then actually that saga continued because 
when the 11th Circuit kicked it back to the federal district court, there was another item to be ruled on. And it had to do with a park rule. And the question was whether the park rule also was affected by the, the ruling about expressive conduct. And based on this park rule, the same district court judge again ruled against food, not bombs, went back to the 11th Circuit for a second time. And again, the 11th Circuit sided with food, not bombs. So Williams Lock, have a good day. That's where it stands. They won. They're still sharing food in in the same park that they've been sharing food in for, I think, 20 years, something like 20 years. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. But as we see on every level, cities are criminalizing homelessness and criminalizing food sharing. It never ends. And my, I mean, I think we we all understand that it has nothing to do with the law. They don't care about the law. Uh, the city of West Palm Beach, t- two and a half years ago, also passed a panhandling law, which which they had to repeal 11 months later because it was unconstitutional. I was involved in re- recruiting plaintiffs for that case. And the mayor of West Palm Beach, who was totally in favor of that, of passing that law, he's a, a graduate of Harvard Law School. So he knows the law, but he doesn't give a fuck what he cares about is pleasing his rich constituents. And that's what they all care about. And that's all they fucking care about. And they don't care that they're going to spend taxpayer money to fight the lawsuits. They don't care. They get to sit at the table with the big real estate developers. And that's going to be his ticket to maybe the state legislature or higher office. That's all they care about. Exactly. So, Nick, you mentioned that your lawyers are using some of that case law out of the 11th Circuit down in Houston. That's because you guys are not only fighting tickets in court, you're actually participating in a civil rights lawsuit? Yeah, the federal suit. and But yeah, no, even in the in the little ticket suits also, like, you know, at least the lawyer I'm working with, he, he cites it in his motions to quash and all kinds of other stuff. So yeah, it's, it comes up uh, for everything. And, you know, we have a bunch of different lawyers and all the tickets for us are to individuals that we're not getting ticket ticketed as a group. Um, so each individual has to go in and, and we just go in for these court dates and then, you know, something happens and most of the time it gets kind of like reset and then we just have to come back a month later and do it all again. Um, we've hardly had any cases go to trial because there've been so many resets. Um, we had eight tickets that were dismissed on one day and we're like, okay, something has really changed. Maybe they're going to dismiss all of these. But then two days later, they refiled those eight um so it turned out that that was because the police officer was sick or something and uh so it doesn't seem like that that was everybody was like all right now we've you know maybe we've won the battle and it was like no we didn't win anything okay and now this is a question for the whole table how have you found it trying to keep your chapter's recruitment of volunteers focused on the political direct action of food not bombs and avoid it slipping into mere charity and has this recent round of harassment everyone is experiencing hurt recruitment in any way uh for houston it's it's helped um you know the demographic has changed a little bit so um we have younger punk rock people now who are specifically involved because of the harassment that we're facing and then also we have like a little bit of a difference between the we serve four nights a week so monday and wednesday night people get ticketed friday and sunday night people don't so i mean and it just so happens that 
you know, Friday and, and Sunday night people are just like, they have a very different experience. So yeah, th those nights tend to be like a little bit older, you know, more kind of liberal people. And then the Monday and Wednesday nights are more radical, younger. I think that our experience has attracted more people. In, in fact, I wasn't involved with Food Not Bombs in West Palm Beach. I don't live in West Palm Beach. I don't have a car. It takes me two and a half hours to get there on public transit from Northwest Broward County. Um, when I heard that they were in trouble, that's when I went and started going because of it. And other people have now gotten involved. It's attracted people. I mean, you can snicker if you want, but uh, from DSA, the, the Palm Beach County DSA, they're good people. I mean, we may have some, I mean, some differences politically if you want to like get into the weeds with that, but we don't. They're there to help. Uh, a, a group at Florida Atlantic University called Solidarity, also real strong leftists, they started showing up. So it's like, yeah, I mean, people who really know what's up, they were there and have stayed there, not every week, but they're there. We're trying to um, establish more consistency with the presence of these folks. But yeah, I, I think it's it's actually been a boon to us. I also do media for the group and and uh, have put out press releases, and they've actually attracted some. We actually have had some good media attention. Um, but um, you know, the fact is that because we we haven't been as harassed as you guys in Houston or you guys in, in Memphis or in other places, I mean, we've gotten one written warning. Uh, we see the cops drive by and they don't stop. They're just scoping us out because of the lack of uh, drama, if you will. You know, we're just doing our thing. I mean, we almost want it's like if you if you pass the fucking law, start enforcing it so we can go to court already. I mean, literally, it's like we want the shit to hit the fan, but but it's not. And it's like, you know, I don't expect we'll go forever with them not enforcing it. Important uh, thing, if I could just say real quick, in Houston, like, we had this law in the books for 11 years, and they didn't enforce it, so we couldn't take it to court. And in that time, forget about us, like, all the random people who used to just go share leftover food from an office party and stuff stopped doing it because they heard there was a law against it. So a lot of food ended up in the garbage. Yeah. Yeah, there is definitely, I would say, sense of uneasiness every time you know, we're out of share and I'm just always wondering, you know, is this going to be the week? You know, it wasn't last week. Is this going to be it? Oh, all right. Well, maybe next week, you know, it's just a constant cycle of those questions. And, you know, obviously, you know, no one wants to be harassed by police, but it's just, you know, we're hanging in a limbo here with, you know, how long it's been since this ordinance has been passed. And, you know, yeah, we've gotten, you know, a little bit of police harassment with the, written warning that we got, but it's just, it, it sucks not knowing. It's time now for our musical break. We happen to have two songs from members of the roundtable today. First, we have America is a Lie by the Free Radicals out of Houston. Next, we will play Dinero Muerto out of Memphis. Hit it. America is a lie. I know how much this hurts your feelings. And I'm not saying this to cause you strife, it's just that I've heard this bullshit all my life. The propaganda you spit, the rose-colored myths you declare. While I'm so caught up in survival, I have to seek it in prayer. 
I guess it goes back to your gangster beginnings, your genocidal inclinations, your belief in unhappy ending, your well-practiced ability to create the other, your dark willingness to separate the child from its mother, your unequal fascination with how to make things die, your unparalleled hierarchical reasons why, your unreasonable insistence that we all are free, but <laughs> when you use that word, You ain't talking about me. And when you champion rights, if I try to use them, it's wrong. When I resist your insanity, you try to make me dead and or gone. But I know your history all too well, and that is why I reach no other conclusion except America is a lie. And no, I didn't say the president, because... This is bigger than him. Your ugliness goes through cycles. This ain't about no one man. I'm talking about the whole enchilada and the republic for which it stands. Ain't much emotion in my voice because it is what it is. You have gone this way choice after choice and you a lie. But don't worry because I ain't in all. I know a thief appreciates possession being nine-tenths of the law and you a lie. But don't worry because I ain't in fear. Your reign is temporary. I see it leaving here to be replaced by a power that's equal and fair that loves life and humanity everywhere, that respects women and children as the divine creatures they are, that vibrates with the poet's line that everybody's a star. Not in either or world, but a place of both and. A new world where we all understand our divine connection. And provide respect, love, and protection where we all sing in one voice. The elders, children, the youth. America is a lie, but we are the truth.
Welcome back to Molotov Now, and back to our roundtable discussion. So, you know, as Jeff mentioned earlier, um, in our chapter, you know, we had some people vanish, you know, after we started to get some pressure uh, after the ordinance and after some police harassment. And, you know, that's when we started realizing that, you know, we need to make sure that everybody who is participating, especially regularly and anyone who wants to participate, um, they need to be aware of what Food Not Bombs stands for, um, you know, at its origins and, you know, the history of Food Not Bombs and that we are more than just here to share food, you know, like we are doing a display of, you know, our political beliefs in standing up against what we believe in. And that involves you know, needing to hold strong and have solidarity when the issue of the state is involved in trying to get rid of us. So me and Jeff have been having some conversations about this, uh, you know, since these incidences have been happening. And the way that our chapter is kind of, you know, the way that we kind of get along with each other, it's very informal. And, you know, um, we, we don't really have a formal process of, you know, I guess like interviewing people or, you know, having lengthy conversations about, you know, people's true intentions, um, when they're joining, we, we usually just kind of get straight to work once we're at the share. Like people are already lined up for food by the time, you know, everyone's arriving and setting up tables. And so there's this, you know, the environment, you know, it feels kind of hurried and um, we're just busy to, you know, get the ball rolling with um, sharing the food. But, you know, I think that, you know, with any kind of anarchist formation, organization is extremely paramount to making sure that things work. Obviously, no one's the boss of anyone. Um, no one is the designated leader of, you know, telling everyone what to do and when, even though I, I would say that largely me and Jeff, you know, naturally take on more of like the leadership roles within the group, um, you know, in terms of galvanizing people and initiating things for our group, you know, there's definitely more room for work and being more organized in our communication with other members and new members who are interested. So that's, you know, the headspace, I would say, that we're in right now in terms of improving our, you know, our resolve, our solidarity, our, our commitment to what Food Not Bombs is about. Yeah, it's been a mix. Um, we have had a couple of people that have reached out to us because of the harassment. A lot of people in peripheral uh, positions where maybe it's a musician or someone like that that's willing to share our content, you know, but maybe not necessarily willing to, like, get involved in food pickups and drop-offs. So it's been interesting, being that we've had some issues with other, like, neoliberals and other groups that we've associated with or 
built coalitions with were <clears throat> we we are adopting more of an onboarding process at this point uh, where we're really um, making sure that we're on the same page with people in terms especially about nonviolence, but then also in terms of our questioning of authority and that aspect of food not bombs being here to abolish hunger not to just feed people like where if you want to just feed people go go serve with catholic charities or feeding america or the thousand other non-profit industrial complex entities that they'll put a meal in someone's mouth and that's that's of course nothing that should be like overshadowed but the way that they do it ensures that more people need food and so there's an insidious nature to nonprofits and the way that they're funded and uh, what they end up actually standing for. And so that separation between ourselves and charity is paramount. And it's something that we just let be known right out the gates through our, all of our social media. We tend to condemn local <laughs> nonprofits uh, for various reasons from their involvement with police to their lackadaisical attitude toward the unhoused people that they're claiming to serve. So, yeah, we do a lot to try and uh, maintain that order in a sense of, to us, the order and leadership comes from, like, laying a good framework. If we lay down a good foundation for people of who we are and what we believe in and what we do and what we're about, then we hope that that empowers people to organize and take on whatever roles they want. Awesome. All right. So this one, again, is for the whole group, although it might not apply to everyone. What tactics have been successful in the past for dealing with harassment? Public spotlighting, calling campaigns, physical protests, media exposure. What has worked? What hasn't worked? What has been helpful and what has been harmful? Um, well, in Houston, like we were initially like ready to fight the previous mayor when she passed this law. And then she kind of backed off when we did, you know, had the media come out and see that the cops were going to harass us. And we put up a bunch of appeals online and um, social media and a lot of memes making fun of her. And she backed off. And then we used that same tactic a bunch of times. Uh, with this mayor as well, but then he started writing the tickets, so we've kind of needed a broader media strategy since then to really get the story out, and we've gotten incredible coverage, and we've given people a chance to donate to our ticket fund, which, you know, we've gotten hundreds and hundreds of donations. So people are, like, kind of invested in the story and, you know, want to know what's going to happen next and all that. You know, it's, it's like, uh, in Art of War, it says, like, nobody's ever benefited from prolonged conflict and uh the fact that we get like one ticket two nights a week you know has just made this like i don't know this slow drip of it has made it into a huge story and like the mayor looks terrible now he was getting all this positive press based on their fake numbers of the point in time homeless count saying oh houston what can we learn from houston they've practically solved homelessness and now everybody associates him with oppressing the homeless yeah, I think it's really, it, it's very hard to 
assess what the effect is of the media. You know, what I saw in Fort Lauderdale nine years ago, eight and a half years ago, is like the media attention what literally went viral globally because, especially because aside from the harassment of food, not bombs, they were re- repeatedly citing a 90-year-old man. <laughs> definitely not good for your public relations and definitely not good when Stephen Colbert does a whole segment about that. Um, I think the media attention that we've gotten also has been positive. We had some indie media from some like anarchist uh, media collective. Palm Beach Free Press was one of them. Uh, we also have a woman in West Palm Beach who, who kind of writes, uh, she's calling out the city government like every fucking week over something. And she became, has become a friend of our group. So that could be part of it. You know, I mean, it's hard to, to say we, you know, we, we also, because of everything else going on in Fort Lauderdale at that time, we were doing protests. I organized a march of like, uh, well over a hundred people, the criminalization regime. We had the National Coalition for the Homeless in our corner. They were writing letters on our behalf to the to the city, calling them out. In fact, during part of that period, the organizing director for the National Coalition for the Homeless happened to be in South Florida. He came to a meeting and spoke at a meeting talking about Michael Stoops. If anyone is familiar with him, wonderful wonderful uh homeless advocate who passed away sadly but yeah it's it's hard to know like what you know sometimes i mean because certainly the city leaders aren't gonna let you know that your strategy fucked with their heads <laughs> they, they think that they want to appear to be in control all the time and if they change tack it's because you know it's not because anything we did certainly it's because no they just you know They'll make something up. I think just like, I think it's always good to expose things in the dark to the light and keep putting it out there and keep at it over and over and over and over and call out their shit at every turn and expose their contradictions at every turn because they also, they're also very well versed in using rhetoric that would make the uninitiated believe that they actually care about homeless people. They're real good at that. What we know is like actions speak louder than words. And based on your actions, you give no fucks about home. This iteration of this chapter is only a year old. So this is the first time that we've dealt with this kind of harassment. But we have someone reached out to us from this chapter who or was part of the Memphis chapter like 20 years ago. And shared a video with us uh well i guess it was more like from 10 years ago or 13 years ago 2010 when the group that iteration of this local chapter was serving in the same park court square park and they were also harassed um and they had gotten a video of that and put it on their youtube page back then and i guess the story went that like at the time there were similarly to like what we're experiencing now where there's a mayoral election. It was another election type season. So once there was that initial pushback, they 
they didn't really receive too much pushback after that. So, yeah, other people from previous iterations of this chapter have said that what we're experiencing now is uh, much more harassment than any of them ever had before. So uh, they didn't, no one has really had much insight into what might work or what might not work. But uh, we, once we found out that <laughs> the person who's in charge of the authority responsible for ejecting us from the park uh was running for mayor and it's in an election season we figured that we would be able to at the very least get some sort of publicity out of it whereas uh, it probably would have been swept under the rug completely if it weren't an election season but yeah that's that's sort of part of our current approach but we don't just like what um uh, Jeff was saying there's no, they're not going to tell us when, <laughs> you know, uh, if putting flyers on cars was the thing that they really didn't like, or if it's, you know, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so there's one where like, uh, we made a meme of the Houston's homeless czar was paid like $150,000 a year and just goes to fundraisers and stuff. And, uh, we made a, took a picture of him with a fancy fundraiser with the ascot tie. And uh, we're like, keep going to your fancy fundraisers. We'll take care of the, we'll do your job for you, basically. And, you know, like two days later, they backed off, you know, and this just knows, but seems to be causing a What kind of a gig is that? So I, was, I got to debate this guy on the radio. And they were like, the, the stupid question of this radio show that we were on was, you know, do you have to like pull over and help every homeless person that you see? Or is it okay morally to like drive by them? I'm like, okay, this is an idiotic question, but him and his response, he was like, well, what happens is, you know, sometimes I, I'm, I may be driving around and, and I see a homeless person and I, I don't have, but, I, but even if I can't help them, I make sure to give them a look of dignity through my window. And I'm like, okay, like not every person has to pull over and help every homeless person, but you're the homeless czar. Don't you have a flyer to give them? Don't you like, you're just driving around, giving everybody a dignity look. That's, that's where it is. What is it? I think that they probably prefer like a $20 bill. Keep your dignity look. It's it's like it's like the thoughts and prayers thing after someone's murdered by the police. You know? Yeah. What a, what a neoliberal thing to do. I give them a look of dignity. Yeah, that's that's very disturbing. So we're at the final question here, and uh, this one is the crux of the situation, really, because I think that although obviously cities have incentive to go after the poor and the vulnerable and the homeless, no matter who's helping them or feeding them. I think that a large part of these harassment campaigns are targeted of leftist organizations like Food Not Bombs because of the work that they do. So how do we do more than simply share free food and accomplish that desperate promise of Food Not Bombs, the desire to abolish hunger and not just feed the hungry? I know we talked a little bit about this in terms of recruitment, in terms of our engagement at our feedings and our shares with people that we're sharing food with. How does that look in your chapter as opposed to just handing someone food and saying good day? I'd be happy to answer first. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the other chapters have more to say about this, but uh, for us, it's. Um, I think it is 
it goes beyond giving the people who were handing food a look of dignity. Uh, I think it has to do with really treating them like a human being, asking them how their day is going, asking them what they've been experiencing, not to like interview them or anything like that, but just to be a witness to what they're experiencing when so many people, instead of being curious about their situation, will just assume in, in our city here in Memphis, um, there is a, uh, there's a mentality that, and I'm sure that this is everywhere, but that, uh, homeless people want to be homeless. And so we're able to combat that narrative through talking to people who are unhoused and uh, understanding their situation so that when we do meet with people that are uh, ignorant of that, we can be like, well, no, this is actually, this is the reason, or these are, you know, this is the case. So it's a very, um, for us, uh, we approach things in a from the mentality of planting seeds we understand that these systems aren't going away today or tomorrow so we build solidarity within our own chapter by taking care of each other as best as we can so that we can show up to the streets and help others and i think so for us it 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 has to do with our philosophy and the way that we approach everything but we do share flyers and we do uh, publicly talk about these systems. And then the other aspect of uh, just abolishing hunger is uh, questioning the illegitimate authorities or rather questioning the legitimacy of the authorities that are in existence and more specifically the ones that are standing in our way. <laughs> um but yeah, that, if that makes sense, that's kind of uh, where we come from with it. And I'd, I would just like to add a little bit to that. And I think a big part of our goal is really serving in that public area that is kind of this tourist and economic development zone because it highlights the contradiction that they want to sweep under the rug that, you know, they have all this money to give these tax incentives to these developers but they can't take care of their own people. And I think it speaks to the larger problem that the neoliberal kind of mentality exemplifies is that there's really a collusion between these rich people and these politicians and the systems that they work in and the media because they get up there and they say that they love homeless people, they want to help and do all this. But really, when you look at the policies they enact, it's the exact opposite. But the media isn't reporting on the policy part. They're just reporting on this kind of platitudes that they stand up and give. And so part of our struggle is this educational um, aspect where, you know, we're letting people know that these systems are not what they portray themselves to be. Yeah, just to that extent, like the person who we're going up against right now is uh who is Paul Young, he's running on a progressive platform. He's He has taken photos with Justin Pearson, who was famously thrown out of the 
local legislature for protesting against the gun violence uh, and wearing a dashiki. So, like, it's interesting the people that he's surrounding himself with and then paying lip service to progressive ideas while being more of a property person. Yeah, I mean, everything with the downtown is kind of, the goal is to raise property values. And that's why Paul Young was, we believe, the major reason why he was selected as the mayoral candidate of choice by the current mayor, because he has, you know, so many ties with these developers and business doers down there. Um, that is just kind of the, the neoliberal uh, expectation to continue on that legacy of raising property values at the expense of human beings. That's always the, the story seems to be all the time. It's always about who's going to get these property values up to ends up coming into power. That's all it really comes down to, it seems. The, the parallels in, in the cities that I've been talking about to to Memphis, are, you can't ignore them because uh, you, you can call it a business improvement district. Here they're, they're called downtown development authorities. Same fucking thing, right? In Fort Lauderdale. All their building. I mean, you go to Fort Lauderdale now, they're trying to become Miami. And all the housing that's being built is luxury. They're going in now to the historically black neighborhood, moving further and further, you know, where people are living on HUD subsidies. Same with West Palm Beach, super rich people. Right across the intracoastal waterway is where El Lago is. And you know who lives there? Mega rich people. Uh, Fort Lauderdale is known as the yachting capital of the country. I actually have an anarchist friend, knows boats and works on a hundred something foot yacht and gets paid pretty well working for an asshole billionaire. But, uh, you know, we all have to pay rent. He lives in a, he lives in an apartment in Miami about the size of my room in this condo that I live in. And pays a thousand dollars for like a hundred square feet. So no affordable housing is being built. Zero. It's, or they throw a few affordable housing units into a new development. And based on that, they get all kinds of fucking incentives. I mean, this is happening, not just here, everywhere. And so, I mean, look, what we're, what I'm about is like, we, you know, I think. Carly's reference to like dual power. That's it. What we're doing is we need to call out their shit and create and show an alternative and, and keep doing that. It's not going to happen in our lifetime, but little things are changing and, and we just have to keep doing that. I mean, the same individual I just referred to is also a defendant in a major federal lawsuit with three other friends of mine because they tagged fake reproductive rights clinics they they graffitied them this has been in the news and joe biden's justice department has charged them with violations of the federal face act and conspiracy to keep people from getting bad information <laughs> and they're facing each of them are facing more than 10 years in prison we've been trying to get the word out about that case now for a while and so yeah, I know these people. They're like they're great friends of mine. If you ever want to connect, um, you know we we've, we've been around for you know thirty years, and we have a lot of people that just come and you know just do some little thing, bring out some food, and 
you know, we have these agreements and our mission in place. If there's ever a conflict, we, that's going to be the deciding principle. If somebody's, you know, comes along and they're just like, Hey, I'm new, but I really want to share a meeting. It's like, well, okay, look, we got our, got our mission statement here. And, you know, so that's not part of it, but for the most part, we don't really, you know, have much of an onboarding or anything. People just come out and do what they want. And, you know, basically by doing the work, people learn about it. So people learn about being in a non-hierarchical organization. People learn about veganism. People learn about, you know, the threat from the police and all this stuff. So, I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of like that. Um, You know, I, I definitely uh, am an anti-capitalist and I have all kinds of things that I would like to see us kind of uh, talking about more. But at the same time, like, um, like, just doing the work and, sh- and being a model of the thing that we want to see, that that's pretty important too. So it's almost hard to talk about some of these issues because it's like, okay, I was on Majority Report for a minute the other day and I said, well, I think if, um, you know, they're concerned that if they give um, homeless people something nice, then the working poor aren't going to keep working and the, they would they would they use it as a cudgel to keep people oppressed. And, and Emma Viglin, the host, responded and said, well, you know, that's what they want you to think, but there's no evidence that people like, you know, would not be employed and would just be living off, you know, the, the state if, you know, they, that people still want to work and stuff like that. And, and I, I was kind of, I didn't bother getting into it with her, but my thought was, yeah, if we were to like be able to get away from capitalism and capitalism wasn't the model, then yes, people would, would have, would work still and, uh, you know, and people would have their needs provided for. But in the context of capitalism, I mean, I can kind of see the logic of it. If I was part of the working poor and I saw the homeless people getting like, you know, really nice places to stay and food, I would be like, why am I working this crappy job? Um, I mean, I, I make decisions like that myself because I'm like, well, if I more than this, I won't get my Obamacare or whatever it is, you know, like you have to kind of navigate those types of things. So I can, I can, I mean, I think in capitalism, we have to make terrible decisions like that and, you know, cynical decisions. And it's not really um, what anybody wants to be doing. But I, I wouldn't blame somebody who was working poor and they're like, oh, we could live in this nice place and I wouldn't have to work and I could take care of my kids. Like, you know, that'd be great. Um, so, yeah, I think that 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 is part of the problem is that we're, you know, we're, we we talk about a lot of idealist stuff, but the steps between the system that we're in right now, the world that we're imagining are, are kind of unclear and, 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 and it's right. It's like, if you were to just like <laughs> move too quickly, then lots of people could starve, you know? So, but I think that the, the important thing is to always move in the, in the right direction and, and be a good model of that, you know, and that means everything that, that means like dealing with authoritarian tendencies within your group or sexual harassment, you know, in your community or, or like even among the, the activists or if, the, if there's stuff going on with the homeless people, like trying to, you know, get involved and try to work on, on that. Uh, on those types of conflicts, um, you know, and, and, and doing that work is, is a good model. And I've been part of a lot of movements that, um, I wish were still going on. Like I was part of the anti, you know, WTO, IMF stuff that was going on around 2000, um, at a media center. Um, like I would say also BDS. I'm part of the Palestinian solidarity campaign BDS, but there's not that much going on. And meanwhile, like, you know, uh, a lot of these groups have ended, but meanwhile, like food not bombs is still doing the thing and new, new people are coming into it all the time. So there's something to be said for just like, you know, just keep doing your thing and be a model of it. And, and people will, will understand it as they go along. And somebody who came in without any political feelings about it at all, once they see their friends getting ticketed or once they see, you know, 
what's going on with these uh, these homeless service organizations that are making insane amounts of money off of federal grants. And I always got to call out uh, fucking Star of Hope Mission. $25 million of HUD grants goes to them every year. They pay their CEO $561,000. He gave himself an over $200,000 raise between 2020 and 2021. And they force Christianity on Muslim kids and they uh, discriminate against lesbian couples like this is the this is the homeless service industry that we're up against and they see us as the competition they went after us they, they write editorials about how these groups that share food in the street need to be shut down because that's how they make their money and, uh, not everyone there like most of the people who work in that particular shelter actually are volunteers you know it's just the executives who are getting paid but they're getting paid a ton so where can people find you your guys's chapter learn more about it you want to go around and give a quick little plug yeah. Uh, so yeah, Houston Food Not Bombs, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And then um, we also have a fundraising thing, HPJC for Houston Peace and Justice Center, dot org slash FNB. And that's our ticket fund. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll see y'all in the streets. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Thank Definitely. You. Yeah. We're on Facebook, uh, West Palm Beach Food Not Bombs, or some iteration of that. Food Not uh, Palm Beach. Is, is it Food Not Bombs, West Palm Beach? Okay. I know it's one or the other. So, um, yeah, and uh, Instagram, um, and we have our own Slack for, for you know, internal communication. Yeah. Uh, in Memphis, we've got, uh, you can find us through, uh, on all social media, Memphis Food Not Bombs, and then our primary link is through our link tree, uh, which would be Linktree slash uh, Memphis Food Not Bombs. Um, and our Instagram is pretty much the most active. And if people do want to donate uh, anything to our cause, we do have a cash app that's 901FNB. So, yeah, that's how you can find us and contact us. And we, um, yeah, if anyone wants to get involved that's in the area, they can just reach out um, to us through any of our social media and we'll get them hooked up. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast today, everybody. We really appreciate you taking the time. Good. Yeah. Good, good meeting you sort of. Yes. You too. Virtual, virtual meetings. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to awesome. everyone. Aberdeen. Like, thanks for putting this together. This makes a lot of sense to do right now. And uh, thank All you. Right. Right. Here at Molotov Now, we are committed to people taking direct action to stop the oppression they face, or they see others face in their life. To that end, we want to take this time to recommend everyone go out and check on their local Food Not Bombers. They may need some help if you can spare it. These folks work tirelessly and for free to not only salvage food from being thrown away, but then help their community further by feeding the hungry. The core of this work is that it is in public the core is political direct action. Every Food Not Bombs share has political literature or flyers or even just conversations. These conversations can really push the boundaries of what politics truly is. From work like this, we understand that in fact every aspect of life is political in nature. From clothing and food to housing and healthcare. Everything is traded as a commodity in a marketplace propped up by governments and massive transnational corporations. Without them and their devastating profit motive, we could rethink whether we want housing and food, basic human requirements for life, to be bought and sold for profit at all. We can reimagine modes of commerce that don't exploit the land or the workers. All of these are conversations that have been had around a meal at a Food Not Bombs share. 
It is good to talk to people over a meal. It is in our nature. That is the genius of the organizational structure, the dynamic it sets up around the act of sharing food. Cities across the country are facing off against their local chapters of Food Not Bombs in a replay of what happens with reactionary cities ever so often. When cities eventually try to gentrify and kick out their homeless population, one of the best ways to go about doing this is to attack those providing them services. Food Not Bombs does this, and does it without the traditional permits or red tape that other institutions have to deal with. Bureaucracies that stand as a barrier to entry for many wishing to get involved in the community. Food Not Bombs provides people a no-barrier way to get involved in community organizing and experience non-hierarchical structures and ways of being. This is the inherent danger that it poses to local authorities. The spread of anti-authoritarian feelings among the poor and desperate. This has traditionally been looked down upon by those in charge, with Food Not Bombs being labeled as a terrorist organization by law enforcement during a previous incarnation of this reactionary fervor. One thing that should be clear to the city, because we know they listen, nothing will ever stop Food Not Bombs from sharing food for free to those in need. This is not a charity that will be cowed by threats. This is a political direct action campaign that has won numerous court battles in the past over this exact issue. Food Not Bombers are engaged in legally protected free speech when they conduct their shares. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Maltov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. Don't forget, if you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AO1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. You have to go check out the amazing shirts up at feralthreads.square.site. All sales from these shirts are also donated to our comrades with the Black Flower Collective. Thank you. We would like to give a shout out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social. That's K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A dot social. And follow us and other online activists on decentralized, federated internet. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is holding a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash CR Mutual Aid Net. The communique is looking for artist and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net 
to submit your entry. Sabotage Noise Productions will be throwing a benefit concert at The Chuck in Bremerton to support Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network this July 20th at 8 p.m. Check out Facebook for more info. As reported previously, Katie Hussey is still struggling in the wake of harassment by Dayton police that has cost her her employment and housing. Luckily, the charges have been dropped, but she has lost everything because of this and still faces an uphill battle in getting back on her feet. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to help them during this time. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. <laughs>